0: Hey guys, Abel here. Happy Saturday, Uh, happy first Saturday of 2019 actually. Hope you're excited to start the new year and to start crushing all of your goals. And first of all, if you're new to this channel slash podcast, then be sure to subscribe to be up to date on everything new we have coming up here. Uh, we have lots of cool topics and interviews in the pipeline, which I'm sure you'll love. And also be sure to join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook community at facebook.com slash group slash Sustainable Self-Development. And with that, I'd like to kick this new year off with a bit of a compilation episode again on some of my favorite moments from the podcast on some of my favorite topics. And in particular, in this episode, we are going to be addressing bulking, so building muscle, and eating without tracking macros for the purposes of enhancing body composition and engaging in things like bulking and fat loss. Now, the first clip is going to be extracted from my most popular episode from 2018, which was the bulking debate between Mike Isretel and Eric Helms. It was an absolutely epic episode, which I hope most of you have heard by now, but this topic has became all the more relevant for me since I'm currently engaging in my most assertive and deliberate bulking phase ever so far. Uh, This is something that I will be addressing more and more in upcoming episodes and if you're following me on my still newbie Instagram profile at ssdable then uh, you'll be able to see how my always a bit too small and lean body is slowly turning into something bigger, fluffier and hopefully also more muscular under the insulation. So For folks like me, who are currently pushing their body weights up, an episode like this with Mike and Eric is an absolute must, because trading off leanness and purposefully putting on body fat is never easy psychologically, especially if you worked hard for being lean. So in this upcoming clip, we will be going pro on whether there is a concern in being over 15% body fat when you're bulking, whether you should be concerned about insulin sensitivity, chronic levels of inflammation, or just simply gaining disproportionately more fat rather than muscle once you have gotten up to the mid-teens in body fat. So I hope you will enjoy this clip. And with that, let's get into it. So I think the, the first one that Mike brought up is that at higher
1: body fat levels, Uh, we typically see dampening of anabolic signaling. And there's actually a pretty good recent paper that came out that looked at uh, individuals of different body fat levels and their response to protein feeding. Um, And it did indeed show this, but I think there's a couple really important things to point out about that paper is one, uh, that the quote unquote normal people in that paper were still around like 20% body fat for males, Uh, which means that um, what is considered a, a level of body fat where it provides anabolic resistance is probably a lot higher than where most bodybuilders are hang, hanging out in the off season that's not to say there aren't some bodybuilders who get up into the 20 percent body fat range as males uh, you know the equivalent being you know 28 to 30 percent in a female um, but it's probably not the norm the second really important thing to point out about that study is that they weren't exercising and uh, training creates a whole lot of beneficial effects in muscle that, that keeps it pretty sensitive. Uh, you know, you're basically putting in and removing uh, substrates all the time. And when you really look at some of the uh, the types of ways that our body gets resistant to substrates, like, you know, insulin, uh, in, in the case of diabetes and things like that, a lot of it comes from an overload of that uh, substrate without ever being able to clear it out. And the body having to do some crazy acrobatics, like trying to make itself resistant to the hormone that actually will uh, put more uh, substrate into it to try to deal with this, and then you get this cascade of effects that we have identified as, you know, type two diabetes. Um, so, uh, while I don't have direct data comparing trained individuals to untrained individuals, we do have some pretty cool observational data when we look at super heavyweight weightlifters, super heavyweight powerlifters, um, and some bodybuilders in the off season. That I'm not too convinced that in those individuals who do push above twenty percent body fat. Uh, and, and sometimes substantially higher that you can't make decent progress, at least in a practical realm where you do see weightlifters and powerlifters getting stronger in the super heavies. Uh, and you do see bodybuilders who seem to make improvement season to season, even though they kind of go on the, you know, Lee Priest bulk. Um, obviously, that's going to be confounded by a lot of other variables, but uh, I think it's an interesting observation nonetheless. So, the first thing I would say is that this is probably only a concern at, at pretty damn high body fat levels for a bodybuilder, and it may not be as much of a concern if you're doing resistance training, uh, which I would really hope any bodybuilder trying to put on muscle mass would be lifting weights, or they've really got some things wrong and they need to kind of go back to the, the drawing board before you even listening to this podcast. But just
0: to put a kind of, not a final point, because this question will always keep coming up in the future, but... Uh, this, this question of body fat percentages and, and sort of what are the optimal ranges to aim at to, to have optimal nutrient partitioning. You, Eric, you mentioned that you're not so confident in this, um, 15% as the upper limit for, for, uh, muscle gaining. Um, I, I want to address this question to both of you. Are you, um, aware of any kind of literature or study that would indicate that, for example, you have, a worse nutrient partitioning at say 15% body fat than what you have at 11% body fat because this is not really a, a, a trivial question in the sense that a lot of people fear this 15% upper limit so much that uh, they they are of the belief that they have to get to 8% body fat before they even start gaining muscle. So um what do you guys think about this? And um, yeah, I'd like both of you to join me if you care.
1: Yeah, I uh, I think. Practically,
0: this is something to think about,
1: but mechanistically and at the physiological level, again, this comes down to the fact that you're, you're not sedentary. Um, this doesn't hold a lot of water until you get pretty extreme. Um, you know, the, the original idea came is what's called Forbes theory, and it's based on, uh, I would not say strong experimental research in resistance trained athletes. The idea that um, the whole P-ratio idea, and it's, I think it's it's a very useful conversation, but it doesn't work great both ways. And I can tell you that if you are a drug-free bodybuilder and you've just gotten yourself down to say five or six percent body fat for a male, or you know, nine to ten percent body fat for a female, your body is ready to put on body fat. Uh it may also be ready to regain the lost muscle that that happened during that that that, that season, if you did indeed lose any, uh which seems to be much more likely in males, but that's another topic. Um, you know, regain of lost muscle, certainly, you know, regain of lost or, or depleted glycogen stores and the appearance of fullness and you feeling better and seeing, uh, you know, much better energy in the gym and, and being able to very soon put on a lot of lost muscle and look better. Yes. But are you actually going to start gaining new muscle tissue because you're lean? Absolutely not. If anything, you're in a position where, where body fat storage is more likely uh, when you're very, very lean, uh, unless you're naturally lean that's kind of, you know, your settling range. But if you've just dieted a long period of time, especially down to single digit body fat percentages for males, I actually don't think that's in a better, you're in a better position to put on more muscle. It may give you a larger buffer of time before you have gotten unhappy with what you see in the mirror and allow for a more aggressive or longer bulk. Um, But I don't necessarily think that was needed or necessary. Um, I think really what it comes down to Uh, Because as I said, there are super heavyweights who have no problem getting stronger. Uh, What it comes down to is what's practical for your goals. So if you're a competitive bodybuilder and you're taking a uh, one-year off-season, that gives you a little more leeway than if you're going to be competing again six months later. You know, if you have a year and a half before you're going to start your next diet for the stage, you can get reasonably high in body fat before you have to start thinking about maybe a mini cut or a maintenance phase before then you know ramping your calories back up and then dieting you know you you have to think about kind of the long term planning so when when I work with athletes I might not want them to get above 15 or 16% body fat for a male purely for the fact that it's going to extend our diet and we might end up losing muscle in the back end or just not being able to do all the shows we want and it comes down to really finding a sustainable body fat percentage for the off season where behaviorally and in terms of psychological stress food focus uh and also just how hungry or not they are in the off season they can maintain. And we basically want to maintain the lowest body fat percentage we can while not being food focused while still feeling like sleep quality is there, uh libido is normal and everything's functioning the way it should be and you you can train effectively, your joints don't feel achy, etc. Uh, this is a pretty wide range. I've worked with with males anywhere in the range of a legit 10% up to, you know, 20%. Um and I, I think the arbitrary number of 15% is probably not helpful. And like you said, there's many individuals who, uh, I think that data does not, or, or that recommendation is harmful to them, or they think they have to get lean before they can bulk. And in most cases, the individuals who do that, um, not to, to sound like I'm blaming the victim here or anything like that, but I, I think they're already coming from a background where they're uncomfortable with body fat gain. They want to be leaner. They don't like what they see in the mirror and they're looking for information to justify what they would probably do anyway. They want to have a quote unquote science based reason to get lean, uh, so that they're more comfortable with the idea of putting on body fat. Cause then they know it won't be as bad for going from eight to 12% versus going from 12 to 15%. But I think it's, it's a smokescreen that they're, they're giving to themselves that this is somehow optimal and they're just filtering which, whichever information already
0: fits their biases. <laughs> Right. Uh, so just before I give back the, the mic to Dr. Israel, just to make this even more controversial, uh, would you say that a, a guy, if he is not competing anytime soon, would be just as effective in his muscle gaining pursuits if he was to undulate between a body fat percentage of 10% and 15% as if he was to do so between 15% and 20%? Like, Would you say, Eric, that there is no uh, practical difference between the two in terms of efficacy?
1: I would say on average, I don't think there would be a practical difference.
0: Um, there may be some
1: individuals where that would be different. So I think that whole your mileage may vary thing because, you know, there's just such a wide uh, diversity between individuals. But on average, I don't think there'd be any difference. And if you look at what is considered a quote-unquote healthy body fat percentage, um, you know, like I said, even in sedentary individuals, when you're up around 20% body fat, there's no anabolic resistance that we can see in a sedentary person in response to, to feeding. So I, I highly doubt that that would cause any, uh, mechanistic physiological, uh, difference in response to training or, 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 uh, nutrition with the goal of gaining mass. But I do think that if you're hanging around 20% body fat and you're trying to go through a massing phase, you're not going to like what you see. And psychologically, it's going to bother you. You know, going from 20 to, let's say, let's say you did a really good job. Like Mike said, you're doing 50-50 muscle and, 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 and to to body fat and you put on a a good chunk of muscle, you know, over a four month period, you might go from 20 to either 21 or 22% body fat, uh, and you put on a good amount of muscle, but you might not look that much better. In fact, you might feel like you look a little bit worse. Yeah. Cause you're already starting from such a high body fat, uh, percentage, uh, unless you just distribute it really well, or, you know, you gained a a disproportionate amount of muscle in your, and you know, your, your delts and your lats. So you looked wider and better in a shirt. Um. But if you kind of gained it more evenly, you know, it's, it's you're not really going to like what you're seeing. But when you go from, you know, 12 to say or 10 to say 15% body fat, uh, you're maintaining enough uh, of, you know, the, the illusion of, of more size because you're leaner, at least when your shirt's off. And I think, you know, you'll still have some veins in your arm when you train and you'll see, you know, the outline of a four pack, uh, you know, for a male, I think, and for a female as well. Just, you know, with different markers for what that looks like it's gonna be a little more motivating when you're a little bit leaner. Uh, you, but you just have to watch and not let that get out of control, you know? So I, so the short answer to your question, cause I've given you a roundabout one is, physiologically, probably not gonna be any difference. Psychologically, I can easily see how a lot of people would not wanna be pushing into, uh, you know, the low 20s or, uh, you know, the, the low 30s if you're a female, even if there wouldn't be a difference, like if we actually just put you on a DEXA and looked at how much lean mass changed. Because visually, uh, the addition of body fat at that level is not going to be something that you're that most people are comfortable with if they if they consider themselves recreational
0: lifters or bodybuilders who are doing this to improve their appearance. Excellent. So, uh, Doctor uh now I will give the mic back to you. So, if you're still there, uh, what did you think of uh, what uh, Eric just said about uh, body fat percentages and their optimality for muscle building? Hey, just a really quick request, guys. Apologies for the interruption. For years, I did a terrible job at promoting my podcast. So to mitigate my own silliness, 20 seconds of promo time... If you could please leave a rating on iTunes on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast, it would be super highly appreciated. If you like listening to this podcast and think that it's pretty good, then giving it a good rating is going to help it stay around more than anything. And on top of that, I'll be able to get on cooler and cooler guests, which will benefit all of us. So if you could drop a five-star or however many-star rating you think is appropriate on iTunes, massive appreciation. All right, back into the show.
2: Um, if you're truly interested in your best outcomes, which sometimes your best outcomes at a high enough level are any outcomes at all that are beneficial, that you may have to attend to the very finer points, such as keeping your body fat as low as possible without getting into the diet fatigue situation that Eric very well described. Um, or, uh, but at the same time, not getting so high that you just sort of get any of this extra body fat anabolic resistance sort of situation. So I think for individuals that are advanced, between ten and 50 percent body fat, um, I think anything much much in excess of fifteen percent body fat, I think, may be fine, but is not uh, guaranteed enough to be fine for my tastes. Um, I think that um, for most individuals, anywhere between ten and twenty percent body fat is a okay to run through and train, which is actually one of the my my one of my key recommendations when individuals ask me hey i just started lifting should i cut or mass i actually say neither just maintain eat well because you don't know how to eat probably yet just eat good whole foods and plenty of protein for about a year you'll just recomp to an exceptional degree and then one wherever you recomp wherever you end up genetically if you're on the leaner side you can start massing or bulking if you're on the you know fatter side you can start mini cutting or whatever to continue to bulk so i think that that tend to i very very much agree with eric that the 10 to 15 percent um, uh, landmarks become a, you know a focus of extant neuroses for people that already have them um, and they say you know i dex it at 15.1 does that mean i gained point 0.1 just pure fat i'm like no it's not that you just gained pure fat is that you gained a moral negligence that will always be forever with you and will tar everything you ever do and say. It's much worse <laughs> than you think, right? And they're like, "Oh fuck, I knew it." <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I'm just telling you we already know. But you're going to hell. <laughs> um, so, so I think that paranoia about saying between ten to fifteen percent applies almost never to beginners, somewhat to intermediates, but not a big deal. And I think to the advanced, they had better keep between, you know, fifteen-ish. You know, if you go to sixteen, seventeen, who gives a shit? But if you're like Chronically between, you know, uh, 17 and 21% body fat, I think that if you're advanced, you could do better um, by staying a little leaner. There's another situation or another sort of constraint that may encourage staying on the leaner end, um, and that is the, the really high amount of negatives with a prolonged calorie deficit to get back into contest shape. So if you're a competitor, I think that if you're on north of 20%, you look down the pipe at your next show, which is a year and a half away, and you're like, well, this is going to suck 80 dicks at the same time, What? What? depending on which way you feel about that, could be great, <laughs> but um, whatever, poison dicks that shoot fire, bad things. Bad things, folks. <laughs> you know, I forgot not everyone thinks dicks are bad. Here I go again. So, uh, So, basically... You know it's a rough it's a tough road to hoe and going from a super high body fat down to contest condition of course you would take it slowly of course you would take it incrementally and of course you would give yourself the appropriate amount of time but sheer you know time you know time divided by deficit or time multiplied by deficit is going to be long and it's going to cause More a more profound magnitude of all these diet resistance factors hormonal alterations really gnarly psychological Alterations relationship with food potential for strength loss potential loss loss, etc. So I think one of the benefits of not getting much further than 20% um, And 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 for the more advanced not further than 15 ish is because you're always within shooting range of show condition And that's not going to whoop your ass to get into you know um, uh, some individuals like John Meadows for example Um, you know, he never really gets that fat fuck him. He has good genetics and really good dedication has been doing this for like a thousand years or something, but his show diet is like eight or nine weeks or something like that. And like, damn, that looks good. And then you see other people that have gotten to absurd levels of body fat and they're like, all right, time to start prepping. And they just, just describe these horrendous things. Nick Shaw and I, we did our first bodybuilding show. I think the sum total of the diet was something like 27 weeks of almost exclusively hypocaloric period i basically had like a borderline eating disorder at the end of that process something i never want to do again and fundamentally is because we made an error we were so far out of shape that we thought we could just one and gun the diet to the show clearly that was bad but i think you know insofar as athletes um don't pay a big price for not exceeding 10 percent ish and of course there's 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 a, a distribution to this right some people for whom it takes heaven and earth to stay at even 15 percent there's no way you'd push them down to 10 because then all of those dietary resistance factors would mean that they're not getting a whole lot of anything except for fat and you know maybe their sanity back after you get them down to 10. so for sure there's there's genetic uh, you know situations at play here but i think for the average competitor i think if you can keep them between 10 and 15 percent ish on a massing phase, 10 is high enough that you avoid most of these problems of immediate post show kind of situations with hormonal issues and hunger and stuff. But 15 is, uh, 15 ish is as high as I would go to comfortably be within reach of another competition because I, I'm not a huge fan of getting way out of shape and then cutting like crazy to get into shape and then doing it all over again. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it because I've done it for so long and I've been burned so many times. Funny enough. I don't think that uh, another piece of evidence that um, that um, uh, mass bulking phases at at 15% plus are catastrophic. Um, I think to build Eric's point, I can offer myself as an example. And of one, of course, is a very limited piece of evidence. But um, I actually um, got up to right around 20 ish percent body fat at 250 pounds, uh, drug free. Um, that was the peak of my drug free career <clears throat> I'm still drug free, right? So still kicking it. LOL. So, uh, you know, for the, for the various governmental authorities, clearly listening to these sorts of podcasts. But, um, so, you know, I did that my average body fat must have been around 22%. Some of my bulking phases took me damn near a 30. That was that a mistake to some extent marginally. Yes. That I still put on like and I was I wrestled in the 103 pound weight class in high school, right? So did I put on a shitload of drug-free muscle anyway? Yeah, fuck yeah, I did, right? Um, So I think that when people see this 15 as a top figure, it's just like if I was giving out advice to a competitor, I'd be like, yeah, I don't want you to get much fat than 15, but to a recreational person that's naturally pretty lean, they're like, you know, should I bulk to 20%? My advice wouldn't be like, dude, you fucking idiot. You're just going to die and you're going to get super fat forever. And again, the the moral implications of going above 15%, right? You can't go (laughs) to funerals or be at church anymore because you're the devil. So um, I wouldn't say that. I would just be like, meh, you know, that's okay. And they'd be like, well, what's optimal? And I'd say you'll probably don't get too much above fifteen percent. I think you're fine. And they're like, how much are we talking about difference here? And I'd be like, I really don't think we're talking about much—a uh, a huge difference at all. Uh, just another concern. Really quick, and this is a very small concern. um Staying between the 10 15 percent, or I could just dent us those numbers altogether. Staying on the leaner side can allow you to monitor progress visually. Um, to see if what you're doing is sort of working now. There's of course numerical progress like are you getting stronger certain exercises? But I think um, a lot of individuals who do the super bulk and this is of course not something Eric's supporting but just you know Because a lot of folks will be listening to this and some may interpret what we have said as you know Super bulk is great. Just you what know, what is it called dreamer bulk or whatever from the internet? Um, sometimes you think <laughs> that a fucking yeah, like just fuck it all. I'm just gonna eat peanut butter out of a straw and liquefied but it Doesn't sound that bad. So, um, you know that kind of thing is you may very well have thought that you were bringing up your legs but it turns out whatever combination of training and nutritional approaches you were taking didn't hypertrophy your legs much but you had no idea because your legs were covered by so much body fat you didn't know what the fuck was going on so i think a very small element of there um is is to not uh is to be able to attract visual changes and and, and lastly i think even for the recreational lifter it, it, there has to be a question asked of it was, why are you recreationally lifting and I think not all but many answers will be You know, I want to look fucking jacked. I want to look good. I want to look better and better So I, I, I know I have to make trade-offs of body fat to put our muscle in the long term but I don't want to spend too much time away from at least looking like I lift and people not just thinking I'm just some overweight person. So I think there's another argument there from the psychological side, which is important. Like, you know, if someone can realistically go from 10 to 15%, it does not impact their hormonal status. It's not fucking up anything on a too lean end. I think it's a potentially a good thing for them to stay in that range because then they at least look like they lift most of the time, which is like goal number one. I would hate to tell someone to get radically out of shape and then back in shape and have them like, you know for like four week period look like they want to look and then go back to being a fat piece of shit uh etc so those are my thoughts
0: excellent uh, that was great mike and uh, so we so we heard a couple of things so so for one there is the the, the psychological considerations so pe- people just generally like to uh, be pleased with what they see in the mirror and that can be encouraging to keep training hard, to keep being on point with your diet uh, the other thing is the visual assessment thing like like both of you kind of touched on this it, after some point it kind of becomes just hard to assess whether you put on muscle whether you whether you just put on more fat and then also there might be some potential physiological downsides to to getting over a certain body fat percentage but um uh, mike if i understood you correctly you kind of said that this is more of a concern to more advanced individuals so if we are talking to the kind of Intermediate-ish, uh, lifter who is probably the, the majority of the people listening to this for them who are not competing anytime soon or maybe don't even plan to compete at all. They just want to look like they lift. Would it be a good, um, kind of general advice to give them to generally, if they can tolerate it, be at the lower side or leaner side? Uh, and, um, but, but generally just try to aim at a place where they feel good, have good energy levels and, Or still not too unsatisfied with their body fat percentages would that be a general good recommendation uh mike you can go first since you unmuted yourself
2: oh yeah sure yeah i think that's just fine and i I wouldn't um i would belabor the point of staying on the leaner end inversely for beginners and intermediates like being like don't you worry about being lean you need to get jacked so as long as you're not over 25 percent i think you're good to go um as they begin begun to become intermediates, I would say as long as you're not over 20%, I think you're good to go. As they become highly advanced, I would then say that, you know, if you get over 15%, it's not the end of the world, but I would just try to stick between 10 and 15 So I think there's definitely uh, different levels of advice for levels of individual and their involvement in sport. I think that's actually a good point to make in general, which uh, Eric will likely agree with. Um, sorry, Dr. Helms, I keep uh, – Eric, stop calling me Dr. Israel, God's <laughs> sake. Call me Mike. Doesn't that shit cancel out when you're both PhDs, right? It's like, you know what I'm saying? We're all back to first names, which, by the way, is weird to do with your principal investigator that gave you a PhD. Like, all of a sudden, he becomes just like Josh, and you're like, no, absolutely not. Dr. Garnett, I'm never going to call you Josh. That's ridiculous. You know, like, um, so anyway, um, I think a good piece of advice is for those individuals looking for recommendations on the internet as far as lifting and dining, et cetera, training age is a big factor. Um, And it is one of the the key stumbling blocks to people looking at what pro bodybuilders do, for example, um, and trying to copy it. And that's drug-free or not, you know, um, because they're clearly at the advanced stage and they're just going to be doing some very, very different things. So I think it's always pertinent to consider developmental age, even when giving body fat ranges that are realistic versus optimal, et cetera.
0: Right. Eric, anything to add to this that uh, we didn't belabor so far?
1: Uh Uh-huh. I believe there
0: are a few more things. I think the, um,
1: I'm, I'm very much on the same page with Mike with everything you just said. And that extends across all sports. You know, the recommendations you give to a beginner, intermediate or advanced are going to be different and should be different. Um, I think the only minor point of contention is, is one that ends up with the same practical outcome is I, I'm not necessarily convinced that there are physiological reasons why someone with more muscle mass and more training age under their belt shouldn't be getting at a higher body fat percentage, uh, or not, not higher, but that 15% is the cutoff. But I think practically, um, look, you, you, you've got maybe another five pounds left you can put on your body ever before you start having, you know, age related declines and you just can't train the way you want. Um, so why are we pushing up to, you know, 15, 16, 17%? And for God's sake, man or woman, you know, you've been lifting for 15 years and going through this whole competing process. This is your 40th show. Uh, don't you think you should have a better relationship with food, where you don't have to get up into, you know, like low low scale obesity levels of body fat? I think that's that's probably the reason why I would be like, why don't we stay a little tighter? It's going to make your diet easier, and you know, this shouldn't be a problem for you. And there's no purpose to be pushing these big big surpluses and for or for or long long massing phases because we just can't do that much in a single off season or even two off seasons. So I think practically that becomes uh, the same outcome, although I'm a little less convinced of the, the physiology there. Um, and then just to belabor the point of not worrying too much about your body fat levels if you are actually training and and active is, you know, the athletes on the planet that have the highest level of lean body mass ever reported are sumo wrestlers. So it's certainly not like they turn into Jabba the Hutt and, and and just because they have anabolic resistance. <laughs> Um, and I think that's just, just something to point out that, you know, activity is a very powerful uh, modulator of, of, of nutrient partitioning. And um, I think probably more so than the body fat percentage you're at.
0: All right. Thank you for that, Dr. Eric and Mike. And the next clip is from a recent interview with Steve Hall from Revive Stronger, who I think is a great model for many of you guys in that He is currently going through some of these more assertive gaining phases himself. So the conversation here will be a bit less theoretical. And in this case, you'll be able to hear from someone who is actually practicing the act of bulking assertively and really trying to eke up more muscle gains. So with that, uh, let's hear what Steve has to say on bulking. Scrolling through your Instagram and seeing pictures of you this year and the past year as well, it's pretty evident that you made some serious gains like a lot more impressive gains than a lot of intermediate plus you know advanced people will make first of all would you would you agree with the fact that you made some serious gains ever since um like in the last two years or so because i mean two years ago probably you would agree that you've already been at least at the intermediate late stage intermediate stages as, as a lifter so would you agree with the fact
3: that you made some serious progress in terms of muscle mass gains so i think uh, i'd say thank you and i i I never like to say, yes, I think I have, because it's always in the back of my mind. Like, what if I haven't? I think all bodybuilders are like that. We never wanna be like, oh yeah, I've made amazing gains. Or at least I don't, I'm very much like, yeah, I think they're okay. Uh, Hopefully I've gained like a pound of muscle here or there. But when I really honestly look at myself and I look in the mirror and I'm like, Steve, you've, you've had to throw away a lot of your old clothes because they no longer fit. You've moved from a medium to a large, a legit large now. In some clothes, I have to wear an extra large and you're as lean at kind of 190 pounds as maybe you were even as lean as what you were at 180 pounds a couple of years ago. So I'd agree with your assessment that I've definitely made some really big improvements and better than I have in previous off seasons, which is interesting because like you said, I was an intermediate, maybe, I don't know, late intermediate is very difficult to completely know on that. Um, but as you get more advanced, you generally see less results. I think the biggest difference, at least for me, is that it, in my off-season between 2017 to 2000, uh, 2014 to 17, this is when I was probably, I was self-coaching that whole time and I was really not completely sure where I wanted to go with things. I was hearing a lot of things. I was not very sure of myself. I was a bit conflicted in what I wanted to do and I struggled with it. I really did. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go down the powerlifting route I was very much focusing on trying to be a power builder and struggling with that. And it wasn't a program or system that worked for me. I was under the impression and focused too much on P ratios and too much on staying lean and not going too far away from my stage weight. And I was coming out of that, I think the the competition season in 2014 hit me quite hard. I'd come down from 190 pounds to below 160. So I'd lost over 30 pounds in that period of time my stage weight was like just above 160 pounds carved up. So it was kind of a bit like, wow, I thought I I didn't think I'd need to lose so much weight. I'm a bit scared to let my weight go up. And so in that whole off season, I was struggling with this power builder mentality where I wasn't really making strength gains. I wasn't really making hypertrophy gains. I wasn't as well educated as I thought I was. And I didn't really understand the fundamental basics and principles of things anywhere near to the degree that I understand them now. So I was very much in this kind of wishy-washy period, um, which didn't lead to great results. And again, I, I handicapped my off-season by making um, sure I didn't go much above 180 pounds, which is like, what, 20 pounds above stage weight, which is not really that much. And it was actually less than 20 pounds above stage weight. So there was a lot of kind of stagnation in that period of time versus this off season where I learned so, so much in the years of like my contest prep and the period before that. And I learned so much about the fundamental principles and I I absolutely have to give uh, credit to Mike Isretel for that because he cemented a lot of those ideas in my mind with only discussing with him, consulting with him, having him over for seminars. I was very much influenced by by him by large degree. And also through the scientific principles of strength training by himself, Chad Wesley Smith and James Hoffman, a fantastic textbook that just put a lot of the knowledge that I had in my head into a really kind of cemented system and a a good understanding where I was actually like, ah, like, that's why that program works. That's why that program works. And I've understood it more and more as I've done it myself and I've developed programs myself. And so I've got to a point now where I'm much more confident in what I'm doing. I have much more specificity in what I'm doing. And I'm much more assertive than I've ever been in terms of allowing my body weight to go up, really not caring too much about body fat percentage, keeping it moderate, of course, not kind of just getting uh, falked, fat bulked. And um, that's really the biggest difference for me, having that kind of more knowledge, more understanding, greater specificity, and really having a direction with everything. And I think I formulated a lot of that during my contest prep. I think I made actually probably some progress in muscle growth during my first stage of contest prep before I then maintained and dug into shows. And now because I had all of that foundation built up, it's just made my off season so productive to date. And I just hope it keeps going that way, but I have a, a feeling it, it may slow down, um, but I'm excited for what's to come because I it really, for me, made me realize how important for some people how important specificity really is, because I think some people can get away with a bit less of that, but others, if they really, really wanna drive results, they really wanna get to that advanced level and make progress during that period of time, they have to almost get a little bit kind of ultra specific, which for some people isn't where they ever wanna go, and maybe they will never get to that really level of advancement, and some other people, maybe they never need that level of specificity because potentially genetics or some other, I don't want to just throw out genetics as if that's the, the rule of thumb, but some people just don't need to go to that, to that point. But, um, once I went all in, um, I just saw so many more results. Awesome. So uh, so let's uh, talk about the eating side of things
0: first. So first of all like how how aggressively do you allow yourself to go into a surplus uh, during your off season? And then I I know from kind of following you and uh, your approach that you like to do some mini cuts um, interspersed here and there. So first of all like how big of a surplus are we talking about? How much weight are you allowing yourself to gain in sort of a we- uh, weekly, monthly basis? And then, how long do you go uh, at any one time in a in an uninterrupted surplus before you um, fit in a mini cut here and there?
3: Yeah, you're completely right. Um, I do intersperse mini cuts, and in terms of rate of weight gain, I have generally aimed for. And I think it maybe for people that follow me on Instagram, they probably think I have like I know exactly how much weight I've gained over the last like. Even, I don't even know how much weight I've gained over the last month, let alone the last like couple of weeks, um, because I don't focus on it as much as maybe it comes across. I do look at the scale every single day. I do take a picture and write a little bit of gratitude, but I save it down and then maybe once a month I put it into a spreadsheet. And for the most part, I'm just looking to see that number slowly trickle up. And in my head, I'm thinking I wanna be gaining around half a percent to a percentage per week, but a daily number doesn't matter. It's that long-term average. So if I'm seeing a lot of kind of fluctuations up and down, like I know that 193 and then 190, yeah, I'm middling that. Um, if I'm consistently seeing, okay, I've just stalled out at this weight for quite a while, I'm gonna just increase calories a little bit by 100. So I'm, I am aiming for that 0.5 to 1% of body weight gain per two weeks. I say two weeks because I think assessing it any more frequently than that is going to be very, very difficult. So over the course of a month, um, I'm aiming to gain kind of, yeah, a one to 2% of body weight over that period of time. Normally closer to the the 1% than the 2% um, for the most part. I'll be lucky to gain more than that. I tend to still be, I'm still on that kind of fat phobic side where I wouldn't want to push harder than that. And I don't think realistically it's Uh, makes sense to push more than that. I don't think we have enough data to support pushing kind of very aggressively in terms of body weight, but I'm definitely more on the assertive side than conservative side for the most part. Um, I think it people who handicap themselves to gain a pound per month, I really find that difficult to really know that you're gaining. And I prefer to be in the knowledge that I'm in a surplus and I'm really, really gaining. Um, and I can always pull back and I prefer this more, um, you may end up pushing for a shorter period of time your body weight up and then have to pull down but i prefer that approach to the very slow gaining and then pull back very very sparingly just because my past experience of doing that hasn't been very fruitful and i found actually purposely being like you have a timeline of this period of time it might be three to four months where you're actually gaining weight and then after that steve you're pulling back and you're going to maintain and it's kind of like when you have a deadline there when you have something like that it's like i don't know At all waste any time. I don't want to spend time spinning my wheels. And for myself and for clients, it's been a game changer because people have actually then embraced seeing the scale go up. Whereas I think of a lot of the old mentality of really just, oh, you don't need much of a surplus. You can just maybe maintain and gain some, like, uh, gain some muscle. I think that led to a lot of people being a bit less. Push it, putting less emphasis on their recovery, less emphasis on the training, getting poorer results or at least much, much slower results via taking that approach. Whereas when you have, yeah, that deadline, that timeline, it seems to be more fruitful, at least in my experience, um, and then when you are working with clients online, you need to give them results in kind of a, a, a time span. So if you are just like, yeah, we're just gonna get maintenance, we're just gonna some like train hard and we're just, yeah, results will come. You you might not see them kind of after like three months, maybe you'll see something and it's a hard sell online. Um, not saying I think that's the optimal approach. I just think I'd find that difficult to sell to some of my client base. And obviously I'm not doing that myself, which again is a hard sell when you're not practicing what you preach. So in terms of then how long would I go gaining before a mini cut, I think from the outside in a lot of people view mini cuts as just a tool to reduce body fat uh, and that certainly is a really big part of what mini cuts are to keep you in kind of a range of body fats. You're not too far away from stage weight as a competitor and you're not too far away from where you're comfortable as just a general person and you're healthy and potentially you've improved some P ratios and things like this and you've made yourself a little bit more insulin gen- uh, insulin sensitive and that sort of thing. But the second role and important thing that I use mini cuts for is, I see there is kind of, like Mike has his volume, you incrementally push it up, you get some kind of adaptive resistance buildup, um, might call it anabolic resistance. And you just basically get to a point where you're like, my volume is at a point where I, ju- I just need a break from volume, it's really, really just a bit unsustainable right now. And so rather than just taking a period of time at maintenance, I then will put in a mini cut because it's like, well, we're going to pull back volume a little bit anyway. We can go into somewhat of an aggressive uh, diet and just pull back training volume somewhat, pull back body fats a little bit, and then go forward. Now, I am not a 100% sold on mini cuts for everyone at all. I think they should be used sparingly and not with everyone. Some people really do well with them. Other people, they just can't handle them because of lifestyle or they just find that they really get fatigued from it. And that's undercutting what you're trying to do with reducing the training volume, reducing that fatigue. But for me so far, I've done two in this off season and both of them, after doing them, I've just, my physique has ended up looking its all time best. I've seen really good progress within the gym um, and I felt really, really good from it. So for me, they've been a really useful tool. So when you're talking about kind of when do you dot them in, I think it's important to realize each mini cut you do probably buys you less time in that you train, and you're building a certain amount of fatigue and you're cleaning some off with the mini cut. Same with body fat, you're building up some body fat, you're cleaning some off, but every single time you're not bringing yourself back to baseline. So you might get like a four to one ratio, then a three to one ratio, and then maybe a two to one ratio. And then you're like, right, I can't mass for a month. (laughs) That just doesn't make any sense to mass for a month and then mini cut. Let's actually just maintain at maybe a peak body weight where you're your biggest ever where you're really muscular, maybe you're pretty high body fat, but then you can cut down, maybe do a, a 10 week diet period, maintain at that leaner body weight, wipe the slate clean again with training volume, with fatigue, and then push up again. And then you've got a really long off season where you can use these, dot in these mini cuts sparingly to keep you ticking over, keep everything performing really, really well, rather than trying to push through masses of fatigue or push body fat levels to a kind of level that you don't want to be at for whatever reason that might be. So, that kind of explains my approach to using mini cuts and how I like to see scale weight progress.
0: Sweet. So, um, yeah, so you, you pointed out that each mini cut buys you less time. So, in your recent offseason, like what was the long, longest time you went without any mini cuts? And then what was the shortest? Like, was it four months the longest any, th- that you went and then maybe two months the least? Or how did that play out for you?
3: Yeah, I think I went just over four months. Uh, well, out of my, If I take you through actually my, since my show, so after my show, I did about two months of gaining um, gaining body fat, plenty of body fat uh, and weight. I should have actually gained a bit faster than I did. I kind of took just uh, basically the same approach to my off season as to that post show period, which in hindsight was not a great decision because I was still having many of the things you get when you compete. I had kind of poor sleep. Food focus, I just wasn't in the best shape. So I should have just basically doubled my probably somewhere doubled uh, the rate of gain that I was for that post show period, just kind of like the recovery diet that uh, 3DMJ popularized, which I think is fantastic. Um, after that, I then did go through a maintenance period just because after post show and then doing it, I did quite a high volume massing period for that. I was just in quite a fatigue state generally. So I just pulled back and maintained at this kind of quite a a low level of body fat, but I like to get people to their like low end of their settling point. So they feel pretty good, they feel pretty comfortable, but they're still very lean for the most part, depending on them. So for me, that was pretty damn lean. Uh, And then I went for, yeah, about a four month period before then, I had a mini-cut, pulled back. That mini-cut was only three weeks long. Um, so it was really in and out very, very quickly. And it was mostly to bring that, that training volume more than anything. My body fat was still in a, a very good position, so I didn't pull back too hard that time. Um, I then went for another three-month period, uh, actually just over three-month period. Um, I tend to do like four to five to one paradigms of accumulation to deload. So it was like a, a 3 mesocycle period before pulling back again. Um, that time, I did a four or five week mini cut. I can't actually remember off the top of my head, but it was a little bit more extended. I had a little bit more body fat um, and I could handle that mini cut actually much better being at a slightly higher body fat. And this is something that might come into the whole um, each mini cut buying you less time. I think in some instances you can almost find that you can extend each mini cut a little bit potentially and it buy you the same amount of time so where you might have a three-week mini cut then you might have a four to five week mini cut and you might have a five to six week mini cut and that buys you the same sort of three to four mesocycles of massing potentially but again you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to do an extended cut eventually um i think i answered your questions i can't remember if i answered them all (laughs) there
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you did. Yeah. So kind of the longest uh, you would go without any mini cuts would be like four or so months. And then when you get to the point where you can't even go for as long as like two months without a mini cut, then maybe you maintain or actually do like a
3: more extended cut. Did I get that right, more or less? Yeah. For, for me personally, that, that's spot on. Um, for some of my clients. I won't put them through mini cuts if I don't think it's appropriate for them. Um, They'll be explained because oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, let's do a mini cut. And I'll be like, are you sure? You've got this, this, this going on. Let's just go through a period of maintenance. And sometimes it's a maintenance phase and then we just go back into massing. uh, And then sometimes it's, yeah, maintain and then go through an extended cut that's less aggressive. It definitely depends. But for me personally, you are spot on with that.
0: Alright thank you very much Steve and with this let's get into our final clip of the day which is from one of my personal favorite interviews from 2018 which was with Dr. Eric Helms once again on macro tracking and the things you can achieve without tracking macros. So in this clip we will talk about just how far you can push your body in terms of body composition without tracking macros, how bulking can be more effective actually if you auto regulate your food intake across the days as well as the lifestyle and mental benefits you can get without macro tracking. So if this sounds good, then let's get into this final clip for today with Dr. Helms. I'd just like to take a few minutes to uh, respond to those people who are are now probably going to say that, well, yeah, sure, you can be healthy and happy if you don't track macros, but if you want to have some abs, if you want to make good gains, then it's just not going to happen without tracking macros. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about this. Um like just how far can you push your body composition and, uh, you know, athletic pursuits without tracking macros? Yeah, great question. I think really it just comes down to um,
1: – so So first we have to just acknowledge that uh, a finely tuned, aware person of their, their own hunger and satiety signals is probably not going to gain weight unless they really just choose a lot of hyper palatable foods uh, that are, you know, low in actual Uh, mass or or the amount of like space they take up. So your mechanical satiety would be low while you're taking in a lot of calories. That's like the only way if you actually pay attention to hunger and satiety is if you only choose very, very calorie dense foods, will you be uh, gaining a lot of weight and being overweight on average, unless you just uh, tend to have a genetic profile that results in carrying a little more body fat than average. Um, But if you have um, adopted a, a quote unquote fitness lifestyle to where you're active uh, you're you're performing resistance training, and your nutritional habits are largely influenced by doing by by consuming like a higher protein, higher fiber, higher fruit and vegetable diet. Um, you can actually take things pretty far, and where the limit is is based on at what point can you no longer trust your satiety and hunger signals, or at what point do you need to reach a quantitative goal such that qualitative values might do you a disservice. So, for example, if you were a powerlifter and Uh, You hover in a natural state, three to four kilos over your weight class limit, and you know that four weeks out, you need to do a mini cut and then do some minor water manipulation to safely ensure uh, that you make your weight class and that you can compete just as strong as you were normally in your weight class. That means you, you probably will need to push yourself to the point where you are hungry and you wouldn't be satisfied at every meal. And that's totally fine. And you probably also should weigh yourself to make sure that you actually meet that weight class cutoff. So for that four-week period, you know you're stepping on the scale a few times per week. You're getting on my MyFitnessPal. You're tracking, and then between competitions, you shift back towards your normal habits. I think there's nothing wrong with that, and I think it would probably be uh, risky and probably more stressful to a uh, you know a powerlifter to try to not step on the scale and just hope they made their weight class. Um, so that that isn't advised. Uh, another example would be if you were a fitness model uh, or a physique competitor and the level of leanness required for you to either you know show up at the shoot or get on stage and be successful is something that will result in extreme hunger and uh, you know diminished signals of satiety well obviously you can't listen to your satiety and hunger signals but outside of that you actually have a ton of options Um, you know you you uh you mentioned that i've i haven't been tracking macros for a while and that's true i haven't tracked macros since 2012 and i've uh competed in uh power and i've just stayed in basically the weight class where i hover around uh, i have now this year done two different mini cuts uh, and i've actually gotten reasonably lean um and i've also gone through a post you know phd data collection uh gaining phase where i I went up from about 93 to 100 kilos over the course of about just under a year and a half. Um, And I did all of those things without tracking. And I did it by focusing on uh, how hungry or how full I felt uh, and using that as a a barometer and an auto-regulation tool for how much total calories I ate with some tracking going on. Um, And what I mean by some tracking is I never actually busted out my fitness pal. But in my head, I would have a running tally of how much protein I was eating. And then I would basically just rely on the habits I've developed since 2004 when I started lifting and adopting a bodybuilding lifestyle and just tracking the few things that uh, haven't stuck from that habit kind of based lifestyle change. Like, for example, I need to make sure that I have uh, enough fruit in my diet and we need to make sure that we cook enough meals at home to get enough vegetables Um Um, and then, you know, just keeping a running tally of protein in my head and also getting enough fluids. So something like we cook at home four times per week and at a minimum, uh, for dinner. And then I also every day typically have a protein or Greek yogurt shake with two to three pieces of fruit. Um, and that gets me my fluid intake, my fruits and my vegetables, and also contributes towards my protein intake for the day. So those things I do, and I just make sure they occur. But the portion sizes at the meals when I sit down, like you said, uh, or when you know we go out to eat, or when I have lunch or whatever, are dictated by. Uh, hunger and satiety and if i'm going through a mini cut i simply just make different decisions and i'm i stay a little more hungry all the time or a little less full and when i'm trying to gain weight i make sure that i'm eating much more uh, calorie dense foods i'm including more non quote-unquote bodybuilding lifestyle foods we eat out more frequently i don't make as much of an effort to get in fruits and vegetables which fill me up Um, so i make these uh, these qualitative changes to my diet Um, and I pay attention to the level of satiety and hunger that I have to achieve my goals. Now, when I get on stage next year, because I'm going to be starting a diet in about a month, I'm definitely going to either from the very start or at a certain point um, start tracking macros and being more precise because uh, at a certain point it it doesn't serve you to pay attention to hunger and satiety. In fact, you probably shouldn't you probably want to just get to a place of acceptance. Like, I'm going to be hungry, but that's not my focus. I've got these numbers and they're going to restart tomorrow. And, and that's when I, I think you, you'll be served by something like if it fits your macros. Uh, and then you probably should do that because, uh, you know, getting to the point of having, you know, striated glutes is, is certainly not going to happen. Uh, in most for, for 99% of people uh, with, with just kind of going by feel. Uh, and it would probably be better to,
0: to be a little more quantified. Yeah, I I think that's just uh, brilliantly said. And uh, I believe you put out a blog post maybe uh, a year ago, I think around the episode with Mike Isratel that we did on the bulking debate, you know, just to plug that episode where you made a case for an auto-regulated gaining phase and how eating based on hunger and satiety signals and just letting your calories go up and down and fluctuate across time because you're eating based on hunger and satiety signals can be better almost than putting yourself in a 300-calorie surplus and eating, say, 3,500 calories, regardless of whether you were sitting on your ass all day or you were running up and down and training hard, because your surplus over time will be more accurate given your given your needs. So um, do you want to touch on this a little, or I covered everything with the question? <laughs> yeah, I think you actually covered that pretty well with your question. And um, But yeah, I wrote
1: that article um, because I had looked back and I went, man, this this bulking phase was was pretty successful and I haven't had an intentional quote-unquote bulking phase since man 2010 I think at that point because it just not been successful um, and I I had gaining phases obviously but intentionally trying to gain you know a substantial amount of weight you know more than a pound a month on average um, at, at my stage of the game and having it work well and not having have tracked um, I think flew in the face of my own preconceived notions of, of what is optimal so, I uh, yeah, definitely. I think you summed it up well, though, that um, we have greater levels of hunger when we burn more calories. And we have greater levels of satiety when we burn less so that we're, we're, we're regulating our energy system. And um, that, that is the natural state to be in when you are uh, paying attention to and eating for physiological reasons. So using those signals that your body gives you is can be a good idea, you know, and it will probably be more accurate than your guesses at whether or not you burn more or less calories in a given day. Um, and it is a free built-in, a built-in barometer that we all have as humans. So why not use it? Um, although that is easier said than done. The whole reason we have an obesity epidemic is at least in part uh, because we have become very disassociated with our physiological reasons for eating, uh, you know, and this is unrelated to fitness. You might be, have been told as a kid that you have to finish your plate before you can have dessert. Uh, You might have been told Uh, You know, as a kid that you have to eat your entire, you know, lunch or lunch bag when you go to work or when when you go to school, Um, you might have been in the military like I was and you have, you know, five seconds to eat your entire breakfast for for the entire basic training period. And now all of a sudden you find yourself always eating quickly and and your hunger signals are always delayed a little bit or your satiety signals, I should say. Um, You might be someone who goes to a restaurant and feels like, you know, I paid $30 for this meal. Of course, I'm going to eat it all uh, versus, you know, leaving whatever's left. Um, you might be someone who has to eat on the go and you're driving and you can't even think about the fact that you're eating. Uh, and it's just a way to get it in because you know you're supposed to eat. All these things that we have in modern society uh, encourage us to not pay attention to these signals. It's not just, you know, tracking macros like we do in the, the weird little fitness community we're a part of. Um, so I think getting, re- getting in touch again with those natural signals can be a very important lesson. Um, and just an important life skill really uh, that can actually serve a, uh, an athlete um, because there's data showing that the more active you are, the more finely tuned your hunger and satiety signals are. It's actually the sedentary people who have a disassociation between energy intake and satiation. There's a good amount of data to suggest that, um, you know, athletes and, you know, like laborers and people who have a very high energy expenditure have a more finely tuned satiety response to meals. Um, and, and, and and they also have appropriate energy intakes as well. So I think this is something that is actually fits
0: nicely with an athletic, um, you know, lifestyle. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll start wrapping up shortly, I promise. But uh, you just keep bringing up such valuable points that I just need to reflect on them. I think when people bring up the obesity epidemic and the obesity statistics uh, to make the point of why eating without macro tracking is just a recipe for failure, I think, I think that these people just don't realize how far they have come by investing into a fundamentally healthy fitness type lifestyle and resistance training and eating a high-protein diet and a nutrient-dense diet and just how big of a gap... Is there uh, separating them from the people who unfortunately, you know, represent the obesity epidemic? And I think just, you know, logically, if you pause for a second, I mean, when someone is eating 6,000 calories a day of hyper palatable foods, I mean, is it really the lack of macro tracking that is the problem here, you know, or maybe it's just a complete lack of control over their food environment and some serious psychological considerations. Uh, So, you know, that's one point. And the other point is um, I want to reiterate what you just said that perhaps even for a contest prep, which I think is going to blow many people's minds, perhaps it can be a viable strategy to sort of eat ad libitum and without tracking macros down to a point where you can still manage it. So maybe at the point where you're maybe 9 10% body fat or so and that, at that point, at which point your hunger signals might be a bit too strong for you to eat without tracking and still be in a negative energy balance, then transition over to tracking macros for the final phase of the contest prep. You made you made a
1: few good points there, man. So, um, yeah, I think one thing I want to say is, yeah, it's very true that some people might be listening to this and going, well, the, the goals I have, uh, like, if I just listen to Hunger and Satiety, I wouldn't reach them. Now, unless you're a competitor or a fitness model, I would challenge you right now to potentially change those goals uh, because that's not sustainable for most people. I can't tell you how many times I've consulted with people who are trying to get lean again for the 40th time sometimes trying different approaches, um, being more rigid and, and trying to live with a level of restraint uh, that is appropriate. And that's not healthy. Like that's not a fitness lifestyle to be in a state that's probably, you know, relative energy deficiency. That That's, that's, that's a syndrome, you know, like that, that's that's potentially harmful living with, with a level of metabolic adaptation, you know, having irregular menstrual cycles, et cetera, you know? So I think the way I often tell people, you know, how, how sustainable was a cut was once you have a few weeks after the cut is over, if it's a, you know, non-competitive cut, that's why I say weeks, not months, and you brought your calories back up uh, and you're, you're eating a little more normally. uh, If you're still hungry, it's probably too lean. It's probably not sustainable. And that's how I I gauge the success of like a recovery diet for competitors or a uh, a shortcut for non-competitors, et cetera. So I think that that's the first thing is a lot of people might need to accept the fact uh, that the way they want to look is not necessarily that sustainable. However, like you just pointed out, um, you know, and a good example of this is um, I, I did a local seminar here when Menno Henselmans was traveling. We spoke at Get Strength here in Auckland and he shared how he used a ad libitum, which just means eating as much as you want, diet to, to, for the maybe the first half of his contest prep where he would just increase the the volume of um, low-calorie foods that were uh, very filling. So he had a higher fruit and vegetable intake, higher fiber intake, higher protein intake, and he had all of these habits that he would, he would lean on that would uh, result in less total calorie consumption without actually tracking and without ever stopping himself and restraining himself. And uh, when, look, when you look at the pictures, I would say he got exa- exactly to where you were, you were saying, somewhere between 9 to 11% for a male. And, you know, the equivalent for that for a female is, is probably in the high teens as far as body fat percentage. And I think that is very reasonable. Uh, and that may be sustainable for many, too. Um, and, uh, but not all. I think some people are going to find that spot 5 or 6% body fat higher. Some might be even be a little bit lower. Uh, those blessed few, but <laughs> um, I think it's it, there's nothing wrong with taking a more qualitative and quote unquote intuitive approach uh, to a point where you start to notice, man, I'm kind of always hungry. I like I'm looking at my broccoli and I want to eat even more broccoli, but I'm actually uncomfortable. Like you know, once you start to get these weird, confusing signals and you become aware that um, you're kind of always food focused, at that point, uh, you, you probably should shift away from that that approach. But it's definitely doable, and I've seen people. Uh, get pretty damn lean, um, perhaps not stage lean, uh, but a good a good chunk of the way there uh, without actually tracking.
0: Yeah, uh, ex- excellent. And you know, I'm really, really glad uh, you say this because I've been talking about these things on the podcast for a while, but it's very different for many people to hear it from me and hearing it from someone like you who has the experience as a competitor, as a coach, and also the scientific uh, credibility as a researcher. And I I just think that you helped more people with this than you would realize. Um, So my final question to you, Eric, is, you know, I put out a post not long ago about the things that have changed in my life ever since I stopped tracking macros and some of the things I mentioned in this interview as well. But I'd be curious, if you reflect back on the times in which you were tracking macros and you compare it with the times and the several years in which you weren't, What would be some of the things and some of the big changes in your life that occurred uh, during these periods? I think the big
1: one is just having less guilt and resentment. Um, I think I was able to work around it. A lot of people wouldn't even know that I was tracking macros. And I had a lot of, I think, probably positive behaviors that are good lessons for when you do have to track. Like I would typically, I would eat, eat as much as I wanted in some of my earlier meals in the day and then just write down the weight and what the foods were probably with some awareness of, of how far I could or couldn't take it. And then the only meal that I would like really plan out was my last meal. Uh, so that I wouldn't, you know, eat whatever's left kind of thing. Um, so it kind of auto regulate to a point, And then at the end of the day, I would, I would, uh, you know, f- close that, that line a little more uh, accurately. Uh, but when I was referring to the guilt and resentment, um, if my, my wife wanted to go out to eat or a friend called us up or wanted to hang out or there was a holiday or something like that, um, I could most of the time make it work and I would estimate and, and do that. But there were times like if it had been a few days in a row and then all of a sudden, then a friend comes and calls me and I'm going, man, like my, my weekly calorie's is going to be too high or this is going to force me to just have a, you know, like mostly protein tomorrow or protein before bed or something like that. I would find myself feeling resentment and Like when, when a a friend calls you out of the blue and wants to hang out and take you out for a meal, the last thing you, you want to feel is resentment. That's a good thing. Right. Um, and, uh, or, or like thinking I want to go see a movie or, or or do a movie and dinner with my wife, but, um, deciding not to do it because I feel like I haven't been in enough control on my diet. I think that made me realize like, that's not good. You know, like I, I should be able to just go out to eat at a meal uh, with my wife because I want to have a date night with her and then just, you know, eat a little bit less or, or order less or, you know, like just make a different decision without necessarily having to quantify it or feeling nervous if I couldn't. So I think that is really where it stood out in my life was that even though I had adopted all of these behaviors to where sometimes I'd look at weekly caloric intake, <clears throat> excuse me, or, um, I would have high and low days, or I'd even borrow like a lot of the strategies I've written about, like shifting from macros to protein, to calories, to just calories, um, or even, you know, doing 20% borrowing, uh, or allowing, you know, 15% of calories from alcohol. Like I had all these systems and I would use them. Um, but, they still required some thought and they didn't come at a zero emotional cost, even if it was a lot lower than I was more, when back in the day when I was more rigid with my, my, my tracking. So being able just to, to let go of all of that, um, and just, uh, in auto-regulate a bit more, uh, and learn that skill I think has been very uh, positive for me and has resulted in a much net better life. And it hasn't cost me, I don't think anything in terms of my, um, my quote-unquote gains. You know, before I left for New Zealand, my best bench was was lower than it is now. My best squat was, was lower than it was at its peak. Um, my physique's better now, and um, mini cuts are easier now. Believe it or not, without tracking, um, and just in general, I have found that I can be more productive, and uh, it's just one less thing I have to focus on. Um, with all that said, uh, when it does come time to track again, I have a feeling it'll be kind of like. A bit of a bumpy road and having to relearn a skill. Um, and so I think there's probably something to be said for when you do know that you will have to track, if you have a goal that doesn't line align with, uh, paying attention to your satiety and hunger, you probably want to start a little early, a few weeks out to kind of like relearn and reacquaint yourself. Like I probably am used to a, a version of my fitness pal that's, that's multiple years old. So, <laughs> you know, I probably used it before Under Armour bought it.
0: So it, it'll be good to, to kind of relearn that skill again. Right. Awesome. And, uh, you know, listening to this, uh, on the one hand, I needed to cringe. And on the other hand, it just made me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside because I had the exact same experience about the guilt and the resentment and almost feeling angry when a a friend reached out to grab some beer and a pizza. And I think these are the things that so many people experience. And yet so many of them will ever talk about it because it's not cool. It's not sexy to talk about this. And I think many feel embarrassed about these things and probably many are also in denial when they are going through this in the moment and i think hearing someone like you talk about this honestly will give a wake-up call to many people and you know i just hope that we gave a nice pitch to the listeners to try this auto-regulated eating a go because it's just such a useful skill to have in your arsenal Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed these clips. These were some, but not all, my favorite clips from 2018. Let me know if you enjoy these types of compilation episodes. If yes, then I'll be sure to drop them every few weeks. There are some really cool interviews in the pipeline, so definitely keep an eye, or an ear rather, out on those. And just one final announcement I'd like to make and I hinted on this the last time around that a new course my first ever course in fact will drop soon which will be everything on eating without tracking macros Uh, you may know if you followed my work for a while that I have not tracked my macros since the summer of 2017 and since then not only did I make the best progress in my life in the gym and body composition wise on the whole but my relationship with food and my social functioning just got to a whole new level even though earlier on I never thought that I could make good progress without counting and tracking everything. So if you'd like to get up to date on when this product is out, just click the link in the description slash show notes and you will be for sure notified. So with that, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great weekend and see you next time.